All right. Good morning. We are in uh, Matthew chapter 26, continuing our study of his gospel. And today we are in the garden with Jesus. And this is such a rich passage. It's brief, but amazing in what it can teach us through what we see and hear in the telling of it. It stimulates all kinds of thoughts theologically and in terms of our Christian living. And there's so many different directions we can go with it. Theologically, it takes us deep into the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, literally God the Son taking humanity to himself in such a real way that he was conceived in a womb. He, he grew up as a child in a simple working family, which he was a part of for three decades before we ever started his ministry. And when he started that, um, he was a real workman. He just worked as a carpenter for many years before he uh, started preaching. And that tells us how real his humanity was. He was a man. And as you go through the Gospels, he seems so much more than a man. He is more, of course. And, and uh, But you wonder sometimes, when you read the Gospel accounts of his ministry, what his actual experience was like as a man, um, what his internal life was like. And, um, you know, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. That's Hebrews 4.17. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. He was like us. And I don't think we see just how real that humanity is any place more than here in this text today in the garden, Gethsemane, as he's about to undertake his greatest work. So what we see here is a man who needs his friends around him. We see a man recoiling from a, what he's about to undergo, something he's never experienced, but the, the very idea of it shakes him to the core. And he's about to bear the sin of the world. He knew he was sent for that purpose. He knew he was sent to be the Lamb of God. He's the great sacrifice. He's the bearer of God's wrath on sin. But now he's actually facing the moment. It's extremely difficult for him. It's difficult for him to go forward. So, folks, Jesus did not impassively walk to the cross. Uh, what, just one more ministry item to check off his list of things to do for the Father while he was on earth. It, it is a horror that is set before a human being. And crucifixion, of course, was bad enough, a, a monstrously cruel way to die. But that's not it. That's not the substance of what he's talking about in this passage. Hebrews 4.17 says he made propitiation for the sins of of the people. Propitiation, that means he turned away God's wrath from them, and he did that by taking God's wrath on human sin upon himself. He became, Paul says in Galatians 3.13, a curse for us. So we can't really imagine that at all. Uh, we can't know what that was like. And, and it's heartbreaking to hear Jesus ask to have the cup of suffering taken away from him. But it makes the heart sing to see Jesus acquiesce to the Father's will. It's just another great theme here. Christ is the example of total and complete obedience 
to the Father's will. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. Another great theme here is Jesus' exhortation to the disciples regarding temptation. He says one of the most useful things we will ever hear about walking the walk in holiness and what to expect as we try to follow Jesus in an obedient life in these uh, fallen bodies that we have. So these are great themes. Any one of them deserves full treatment and we could spend a lot of time on, but I want to try to follow Matthew as he tells the story. So I'm going to touch on each one. I'll try to address each one as we move forward. And we're going to start at verse 36. And the first thing I want you to look at, uh, is the, um, look for is the emotional state of Jesus, his emotional state, what, what he's feeling. All right. So verse 36, it says, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. So first, uh, just notice that he assigns most of the disciples a place to sit and wait for him, probably near the entrance to the garden. And he goes further, deeper into the garden with his A-team, his, his closest friends, the inner circle. It's always Peter, James, and John of the 12 that are closest to Jesus. And there's several occasions where he took them with him to things the other disciples did not get to see. Probably the most famous is the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17. But as with these three, he shares how he's feeling. And these are his closest friends. So he says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. That's quite a statement. Uh, it just cries out how severe and unsparing this experience is going to be that he's about to undertake. Literally just hours away at, at this particular point. So he has never felt the father's displeasure. He's never felt that in his life. But now he's going to literally shoulder the fury of God's anger on sin himself, personally. He's going to experience the wrath of God that sinners deserve. I can't help but think of Paul's words to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where he says, He made him, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's beyond us to grasp what this means to Jesus. J.C. Ryle, the great Episcopalian commentator on the Bible, rarely at a loss for words about anything, says, the agony of Christ here is, quote, too deep for man's line to fathom, unquote. We can't begin to plumb its depths, is what he's saying. We can't measure it. There's nothing of human experience to compare to it. We just have to accept it and appreciate it for what we can't understand. But always, the perfect one, Jesus, sees nothing else to do but pray. And this time, maybe for the first time, we don't know, but uh, it's the first time recorded, he actually asks his friends to pray with him, to be there for him. Watch with me, he says. Stay with me. Be there for me. He is the one struggling on this particular day. So I don't think it's incorrect to say that he's struggling. Uh, his hour has come, and it's hard. It is hard for a human being to, to contemplate because he knows what it means, but he has never experienced it. 
Even we who, who believe in the wrath of God don't really understand how awful it is. Uh, most people have no idea. Most people don't fear hell. Um, they don't think God is holy and that he would actually punish sin. But Jesus knows in a much more complete way than we do what God's wrath is. Uh, he understands. You know, Moses prayed in Psalm 90, verse 11, Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Who understands? Jesus understands God's anger and fury. And his humanity recoils at the very thought of it. He is grieved to the point of death, he says. So weighed down with what lies ahead. You can't express the weight of sorrow in stronger words than Jesus himself uses here. So he has his dearest friends with him, and he asks them to watch with him. But he wants to speak to the Father alone, so he moves further ahead, further down into the garden. Verse 39, he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. This, of course, is the great prayer. It's the model prayer for all who are afflicted and weighed down. He will not ever move out of God's will. But he does ask. This, this sinless man, Jesus, is in prayer asking the Father to take something away that he doesn't, he can't imagine having to go through. It's not all there for him. It, he, it, it shakes him. Even in the face of a burden that nobody can imagine, he chooses the Father's will. So he does ask, though, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. So we've talked about the Hebraic metaphor of a cup before. It's quite common in the Old Testament that the cup is what God portions out to somebody or a people. We might use the expression, we would say dishes out. They would say drink the cup. So what God is going to dish out, it's their portion. The cup is the portion God is giving to someone. It's what he gives them. So the symbolism is related to the contents of the cup. So the cup might hold a blessing in some context, giving nourishment or favor, like, like Psalm 23, my cup runneth over, God supplies all of our needs and takes good care of us. Or it could be a curse, judgment or wrath, which is more common in the Old Testament use of the word cup. A good example is found in Ezekiel chapter 23, the prophecy of the, the two sisters, um, both harlots. Uh, they represent Israel and Judah, and Judah is judged for behaving like idolatrous Israel. And in Ezekiel 23, 30, God speaks like this. He says, These things will be done to you because you have played the harlot with the nations, because you have defiled yourself with their idols. You have walked in the way of your sister. Therefore, I will give her cup into your hand. Thus says the Lord God, You will drink your sister's cup, which is deep and wide. You will be laughed at and held in derision. It contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You will drink it and drain it. Very similar use is found in Psalm 100, uh, I mean, Psalm 11, verse 6, where David declares, Upon the wicked he will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. 
And maybe the most vivid is at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 14, verse 9 and 10, where it says, Another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That is God's indignation toward the sin of man. That is the cup the Son chose to drink for sinners like you and, and me. So this cup Jesus must drink, and it cannot be more horrible. It, there isn't anything worse. It contains all the pent-up wrath of God against the sins of mankind since the day man fell. All the idolatries and immoralities and thefts and lies and murmuring and hatreds and murders and cruelties and slanders and pride and using people and the injustices of the world and the belittling of others and the deceiving and all the sins of mankind, Christ has to drink God's holy anger against all of that sin. So his soul is grieved as the day has come to have that wrath poured out on him. You know, there are Christians who, who deny the substitutionary nature of Christ's death, that, that it's in place of, as the Bible says. Um, they say, God wouldn't do that. God, God's not a child abuser. He wouldn't put his son in a situation like that. He wouldn't abuse his son. Yes, he would. Yes, he would. He would not impose it on his son, but his son voluntarily chose to take on this role, to bear the sin of the world, to set us free from sin and death. He, take, he takes this incalculable burden completely voluntarily. And now the son, in his humanity, asks, is there another way? Is there another way? And there isn't. There isn't. Why why is this in the Bible, this recorded Jesus prayer here? If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Why is that here? It's, it's here so you will not say anything as foolish as God wouldn't do this to his son. Because God is going to do this to his son. Or say something foolish like, you know, God doesn't need to be satisfied. God isn't bloodthirsty. He's big hearted and our sins are not so bad. And all this talk of substitution and sacrifice and blood, it's so primitive and unnecessary. It's not sophisticated like we pampered moderns who know better. Um, it's here so we'll know that those kind of statements are foolish, foolish and really heartless against the Son of God who recoils at the very possibility of this coming upon him. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. It's not possible. If sin is not paid for, God is not just. No judge on earth who merely forgives every criminal and monster brought before him can ever be considered just. So God is not just if he just forgives everybody their sins based on nothing, except he just wants to be nice. The price to justice has to be paid. And God the Son undertook to pay it on our behalf. There's no other way. And while it's a burden that's unimaginable to us, he accepts it because he says, yet not as I will, but as you will. If this is what has to be, 
I will do what you want me to do. There's so much wickedness in our world, in us, and we think little of it, but God knows what sin deserves, and Christ is willing to pay the price for us. And that is the greatest story ever told. Well, he makes his prayer, and then he goes back to see his companions. Verse 40, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So, you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So they couldn't stay awake and pray with him. Now, yeah, it was late, very late in the, the at night. Yes, they'd had a big meal. Yes, it was a very emotional evening. All the John 13 through 17, the whole upper room and all the conversation and tears that were going through that, that meeting there. There's a lot going on. But they couldn't pray with him for an hour. Uh, but based on these words, I, it sounds like they wanted to. They wanted to stay with him. They wanted to be up for him. They they didn't see him go off, and as soon as he was out of sight, they just kind of threw themselves on the ground and fluffed up some pillows and decided to go to sleep. They tried watching with him, but their eyes got heavy, and they went to sleep. The flesh was weak. So he is rebuking them, but he's doing it gently. And and here's our other theme. And I, and I mentioned when we started, one of the most important things, one of the most useful things we will ever hear about walking the walk in holiness in our personal lives and, and what to expect as we try to follow Jesus in the obedient life. So for every person born from above, born again, possessing new life in Christ, the saved person, the person who has a, a new disposition and true faith granted by the Holy Spirit, the one with God's law written on the heart, all those people, even for us, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So we need to watch and pray. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? How many of you are completely satisfied with your spiritual progress? I don't see any hands, and I can't see anyway, but uh, there you are on the other side of the camera. Oh, yes, I don't, I don't see anybody raising their hand. None of us think we've arrived. We know we haven't, right? So we have to be purposeful in growing spiritually. It doesn't just happen. We have to be purposeful in serving the Lord because why? The flesh is weak. There are so many ways we can fail because of our flesh. Uh, it's so easy to be bound up with the cares of this world, uh, with work, uh, with parenting, with school, and uh, sleep when we try to pray, or just put it off and rarely ever do it at all. Uh, that's not good. And, and I'm not making or offering excuses by saying the flesh is weak, just as Jesus is not excusing the disciples. But he's stating a truth. The flesh is weak. So, well, what's our highest duty? It's to worship God, right? It, it needs to be the priority of our lives. The flesh is weak. So we need to labor for that. We need to fight against that. There's a war going on within us, and we have to win that war. The flesh is weak when it gets addicted to meaningless things, uh, trivialities like TV or gaming or surfing online and, and neglecting the things that really matter. 
a lot of things we experience in the modern world are actually designed to be addictive. Now, the ancient world had addictive things, too. We've still got those. We've just added more. So things to literally capture our weakness and keep us from following the Lord or watching and praying as Jesus tells them to do. Some things have been around forever and they destroy our, our walk in holiness. Proverbs 23 has an incredible spot-on description of what we would call an alcoholic. The Bible calls it a drunkard. And the description, this whole description of what it's like to be an alcoholic, and then the very last line in the book of Proverbs, it says, I will seek another drink. And I've read that to alcoholics before, um, drunkard friends of mine. That, uh, And I, I, I said, this is where you are. Your flesh is weak. And that's what it's telling you. I'm going to seek another drink. That's my next, that's my big goal, is to get another drink. Paul says, what? Do not get drunk with wine, but for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's a much happier alternative to that, but that takes fighting the weakness. Much energy and effort in the world is geared towards ex toward exploiting human weakness because a lot of money can be made off human weakness, which is a weakness in itself, that desire for a lot of money and taking advantage of people to make it. They didn't legalize marijuana because it's good for people. They did it because it sedates people and makes them less serious. And they make a lot of money off it. The businesses do and the government does. Pornography would be the easiest thing in the world to restrict online. Easily, easy legislation so no child could ever access it. And they don't pass it. Because there's a lot of money to be made. And a lot of money is given to people to keep that exactly where it is. So we need strategies against being tripped by the exploiters of flesh. Uh, fasting might take on a new meaning. Way back in the old days when I had a little Bible club going at the church, we used to have a certain month and we would encourage the families of the kids in the group to, to fast from TV for, I think, a week. And uh, it was a certain time of year. And the problem was the week I chose was like the hockey championships or something. People couldn't do it. Now, if you're into hockey, I totally get why you'd want to see the championships. But the idea of fasting is letting certain things go, right? And showing that you're stronger than they are. There's films I want to see that I shouldn't see. And I say no to them because it actually feels good to say no to your own flesh or, or things that you might like to see or do that aren't appropriate or that were contrary to God's word or will. So fasting from the internet, fasting from, I've got friends that fast from the internet one month out of the year and I, I, I haven't done that yet, but I really respect that. That's because that's very, that can be very addictive. It can use up all your time. So every Christian has to have an awareness that the flesh is weak and work out how to counter Natural weaknesses and moral weaknesses. It's a battle. And even the greatest saints have seen it as a battle. Um, the, the greatest saints fight the battle. That's what makes them great. It's not that they're above it. Oh, that doesn't bother me. I don't have those sort of... No, that's not it. They, they, they totally get how tripped up they are and they fight against it. So victory over weakness is very real and not only possible, but achievable. Sometimes when our bodies, for example, go through a long illness, we, we wonder if we'll ever get our strength back. You know, if you've ever been down for like a half a year with something and then you get up and you can't physically do 
a lot of things because you're just weak. Well, you can start working out and going to physical therapy and doing certain exercises and building your wind back up and going square dancing. Well, some people do that. Odd people do that. But whatever it is, they, to get yourself going, and uh, we're odd people. So you can do it. Well, you can do that spiritually, too. If you're weak spiritually, you can flex spiritual muscles by watching and praying. Watching means keeping an eye on the things that trip you up and saying, hey, it's being aware. This is, this is not a good situation for me. This is a dangerous sin for me. And, and then praying your way through that. You can find success that way. So our spirits can get strong too. And we have a big advantage in that area. Our bodies might never quite come back, but our spirits can because God put his spirit in us to work out, um, our salvation and make real progress in our sanctification walk. So it's a lie that you can't make progress in holiness. That's a lie of Satan because you can. So you can and you should, you must glorify Christ by strengthening areas where you're weak. So change is not only possible, but it's, it's actually very doable if you walk in the Spirit. Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. You get that? He says that the desire to do the things that you please, that's what comes with the new birth. When God does this work in us, we desire to do things that please God. That's our heart. We want to do what's right. We want to serve Jesus. We want to honor him. But the flesh, Paul says, sets its desires against the spirit. So they're at odds. There's a battle. That's the battle right there. But you're not stuck there. Paul goes on, verse 18, he says, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. You don't even have to worry about the law because if you're led by the spirit, you're doing the right thing. And then he lists all kinds of sins of the flesh. I won't go through that right now. But then in Galatians 5.22, he says, but in contrast to those sins of the flesh, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So we live by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. He grants us new life. He writes God's law in our hearts. So we want to do what's right, what we should do. And now we're to walk with him. So we've got the right desires he plants in us. Now we have to walk with him. That's our choice, to walk with him daily. Make him our daily, hourly companion. In, in that walk is power against the flesh. So through his presence, we can make our life count for Christ. We can conquer habits that are sinful or distasteful. It's a walk. It's not willpower. It's a walk. Those are two very different things. Some people can will themselves to give up certain things. But that's really not what it's about. It's a walk with God that makes those things diminish and go away from the inside. I mean, they start to lose their luster. So the disciplines come through walking with God. It's really his power in us that enables us to do that. Okay, let's continue with Matthew's account here. Verse 42, he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. 
And he came again and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Again, he submits himself to the Father's will. The Gospel of Luke adds a really interesting detail. Luke gives a shorter account in some ways. He doesn't mention these several times. Jesus goes back and forth to the disciples. But he does mention um, this. He gives us this particularly interesting detail that the other Gospels don't. So Luke uh, 22.41, it says, He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your wills be done. And then he says, Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. That is incredible. So when his friends couldn't fight off their sleep to pray for him because they weren't far enough along to do that, an angel was permitted to come to Jesus. There's a really famous painting of Jesus sort of crying and praying in the lap of an angel who's comforting him. Um, the intensity of the prayer, though, is what is really jumps out in Luke's description there. Agony. Um, uh, it's, it's heartbreaking to even read it, to think of Christ in that state. He, he, was, he was always so confident when you read through the gospel, so willing. And even when Jesus was personally tempted by Satan all alone after fasting for 40 days, weak as he was physically from fasting all that time, there's nothing like this describing his emotional state and the temptations. He's just, boom, on it. Responds to Satan with scripture. And he passed that test. But this, this is beyond anything a human being can grasp. He's willing. But only in this case does it seem like he's not wanting. I mean, he's recoiling. There's something in him, his humanity, that's recoiling. It's not sin. It's just a natural re reluctance, reticence, a horror of what he's about to undergo. If there's another way, can we do the other thing? See, he sweats blood. By the way, that's a real thing. Um, there's a name for it, hematidrosis. Hematidrosis. The definition of it is, quote, a condition in which capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture, causing them to exude blood occurring under conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress. That's a real thing. You can actually go online and see pictures of people that have that condition. So the sweat gets mixed with blood that these little blood vessels are bursting. Extreme emotional stress. That's what he's going through. That's why he wanted the support from his friends in this hour of agony. That's why an angel was permitted to comfort him and be there with him. That should tell you how far he was willing to go to save you from your sins. Earlier I read from Revelation chapter 14 verse 10 where it says the beast at the end of the age will drink the wine of the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That is the cup Jesus was facing. And that is the cup that he drank to the bottom, to the dregs, as they say. The wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. That wrath, that anger, that's what our sins deserve. So in a sense, you could say that when you bring the gospel to somebody, when you share 
what Christ did for us with somebody else, you're bringing them an empty cup in a sense. You're, you're, you're telling them that all of God's wrath has been poured out on his son. And if you belong to his son, if you repent of your sins and kneel before him and accept him as Lord of your life, he will take all of that upon himself. He's already done it, but it will be applied to him. The sin that you will be punished for will be on his shoulders and it won't be counted to you. It'll be counted to him. That's what you're doing. You're bringing people an empty cup. So his, his wrath, God's wrath is real. And so is the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. It's real. It is, it is a real solution to our great problem, which is being estranged from God, doing, doing, owing to our wickedness. So you, Christian, if you know Jesus, he has drained the cup of wrath for you. You will not be condemned. Your past sins have been paid for. And you can see in Jesus' plea to the Father what sin deserves. Something so abhorrent that he asks if there's any other way to accomplish redemption for man, to save the lost. Let's do that. That's how terrible the wrath of God is. And there isn't another way. So he's simply recoiling at what divine justice demands from us. Never forget that. Never forget that. Well, let's finish our portion of this text for today. Matthew 26, 44. He left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And that we'll look at next time. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for facing a penalty you never earned or deserved to suffer. Thanks to you, we will never experience it ourselves. The fury of the Father's holy and just anger at defiled and rebellious creatures. We deserve to drink the cup that you emptied for us. So we thank you. May our gratitude and love for your grace and mercy show itself in our faithfulness to fight the fight. Amen. Okay, we'll be back next week in Matthew 26. Hope to see you then.